0: Um, tonight we are continuing our series in the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 3, so if you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus 3. Uh, I want to provide just a little bit of context of where we're coming from in the first two chapters. So, we were introduced to the Israelites, and they are they're multiplying in the land of Egypt. They're fulfilling, um, God is fulfilling His promise to Abraham to make them into a great nation, which is awesome. Um, But their multiplying becomes a threat to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And so he naturally does the worst thing possible, which is to enslave an entire nation, even up to the point of deputizing every Egyptian to throw hebrew baby boys into the Nile River to kill them. So that's the setting we get from chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we're introduced to Moses and his mom, hoping against hope. That he will survive puts him in a basket in the Nile River, and he ends up in Pharaoh's house. Um, I don't, I don't really believe in coincidence. I don't think the Bible does either. So that is the Lord working. He's in the house of Pharaoh, and then as he grows up, he has this royal education, but he's not disconnected from his Hebrew roots. And he goes out and he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and. He steps in, he intervenes, he tries to carry out justice. It backfires. He ends up killing the Egyptians. And then word gets around, the Israelites are like, who do you think you are, being our judge? And then Pharaoh says, who do you think you are, killing my people? Um, And so Moses goes on the run. He becomes a fugitive, and he leaves Egypt. So this is where we're picking up in Exodus 3 tonight. It'll be on the screens. Uh, You can listen or you can read along in your own Bible. I'm going to read the first couple of verses here. It says, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place for you are standing is holy ground. Then, okay, just five, sorry. We'll get into this thing. So this is where we're at. Moses is in the desert. He's in Midian, which I looked it up, it's about 200 miles from Egypt, and that's a long ways to walk, or possibly ride a donkey, but Moses is far from Egypt, and it says he's even further, he's on the far side of the Midian desert. And he finds himself on this mountain, it's called Horeb. You probably know it by its other name, which is Mount Sinai. So this is an important mountain, it's called the Mountain of the Lord in this section, but this is going to be a key place for the people of Israel moving forward through the book. So keep that in mind. We're on Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai. And he's shepherding a flock. And the story starts out that he's kind of this curious shepherd. He sees something that defies the laws of nature, which is a bush that's on fire, but it's not being burned up. So normally with fire, it consumes whatever is on fire. So eventually, you don't have a bush, you have ashes. But that's not what's happening here. The bush is on fire, it's not being consumed. So Moses is like, okay, I have to go see what's out here. You can imagine there's not a lot happening out in the desert of Midian. Um, And so Moses goes over, but what happens is he goes from being this curious shepherd about what is this burning bush, he quickly realizes the burning bush is not the point. That's kind of the famous part of the story, but it's actually not the point. He realizes all of a sudden that he's actually having an encounter with the Lord. God calls out to him from in the bush, and he says, Moses, Moses is like, here I am. Can you imagine saying anything else? I don't know what I would have said. Here I am seems like a good good response from Moses. Um, But then God goes on to identify himself. Uh, In in verse 6, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's kind of referring back to Moses's great, 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 great grandfathers when he's talking about that. So Moses's response to this is one of fear. I think I don't know if I read that part. It's six. So he says, "I'm the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob." Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So Moses understands he's having an encounter with God, and his response is fear. He, he stops where he is, he takes off his sandals, a sign of respect for God's holiness, and the Lord will continue to speak. So in verse 7, this is what the Lord says, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of slavery. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out? He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be a sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. So the Lord speaks to Moses here, and he announces to Moses what chapter 2 that Drew talked about alluded to. God says, I have seen what's happening to my people in Egypt. I have seen the oppression, I have heard their cry, and he says, I am coming down to deliver them. And what's more, I'm going to use you, Moses, to do it. Okay, this is not just like, hey, can you go down to the grocery store and pick this up for me, just like a small thing? No, the Lord has just announced to Moses that he's going to use him to go to the Egyptian pharaoh the Egyptian empire, and say, like, yeah, uh, we're done being slaves, so we're leaving. Like, that's not how that goes. Pharaoh's not going to be like, oh, okay, like, thank you for your service. No, they're slaves. This is an enslaved nation an enslaved people group. They've been slaves for 400 years, and God says, you go to Pharaoh, Moses, and tell him to let my people go. The famous line. Moses has already actually tried to do this. We talked about this with him intervening in the Egyptian who's beating the Israelites. He has kind of like a justice button, if you will. He he recognizes that there's oppression, that there's injustice. And he tried to intervene, but it failed. The Israelites disregarded him as a would-be leader, and he ended up fleeing for his life. So you can understand, with those two things in mind, why Moses says, Who am I to go to Pharaoh? and to lead the people out of Egypt. That's actually a humble response. Things have changed for Moses. 40 years ago when he was in Egypt, he was like, I'm going to free the people, I will be the liberator, and I will do it on my, my timeline and my might. But now, 40 years later, of being in the wilderness, Moses has a different response. He recognizes, like, I could, I could never lead the people out of Egypt. So he asked God, like, Who am I to lead the out? And in typical um, Lord and Jesus fashion, the Lord does not actually answer his question. He doesn't uh, give Moses a pep talk about how awesome Moses is. The Lord says, I will certainly be with you and you will worship on this mountain. He doesn't say anything about Moses. He doesn't say, okay, Moses, we're gonna get you in a leadership seminar. It's okay. I know you're not very good at speaking, but like a couple of public speaking, like if you watch some TED Talks about power poses, like we can really do something here in here, you know? Like if you just look deep inside, you can be the leader of the Israelites. Right? That's something that we would do. That's something that our culture does, but the Lord does not do that. He says that his presence is the guarantee of deliverance for the Israelites. God promises to be with Moses. Moses is still not really convinced, which I kind of understand. This is a big thing that God is asking him to do. Um, so he asked God another question. We'll pick up in verse 13. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So Moses comes to God with another question. This time it's it's a hypothetical question. He says, okay. Let's just say I go down to the Israelites and I announce to them that God has sent me to them to deliver them from the Egyptian empire. Me, the fugitive. I've been gone for 40 years and I come back and I just tell them, God has sent me to you. He's saying what if they ask me, who is this guy who chose to use you and who promises deliverance from the mighty hand of the Egyptians? And when I first started looking at this, I was like, this is kind of a weird question to ask God, like, what is your name? It kind of sounds like Moses is almost like working at Chick fil A, and he's like, okay, so you're going to deliver the Egyptian or the Israelites out of Egypt, okay? You're going to use me for it. And uh, what's a good name for the order? Right? Like, it kind of sounds like that's what he's saying. He's kind of saying, like, what's your name? And this, it sounds weird to us because to us, for the most part, names are like labels they're just identifiers they don't have a lot of meaning in and of themselves for example my name is rachel but it doesn't tell you anything about me it just is a, a label for me so you can identify me as different from randy if we switched names nothing about us would be different just a label right but in biblical times names weren't like that names actually indicated nature they indicated something about the bearer of that name's character so when moses asks for god's name he's not asking like what's your label do you have a nickname he's asking him what are you like what kind of god are you he's asking what kind of god are you that you can promise to deliver an entire nation who's enslaved what are you like what is your nature And God responds to Moses in verses 14 through 16. And let me just tell you, if this is your first time hearing these verses read, um, that Exodus 3, 14 through 16 are arguably some of the most important verses in Exodus, and I'll even go so far as to say the entire Old Testament. Because God begins to reveal something to Moses. He reveals three things about himself, and we're actually going to come back to it, because I want to unpack a little bit more. But for now, know that God, he tells Moses something about himself. He tells him his name, and then he gives him one other revelation of his character. So I'm going to paraphrase what happens next a little bit. In 16 through 18-ish, he repeats a little bit of what he said to Moses. He says, go to the Israelites, go to the elders. They're going to believe you this time. They'll, They'll listen to you this time. Go tell them, I am going to bring them up out of Egypt. I'm going to bring them into the promised land. And then you guys go to Pharaoh and say, let us go. We're going out into the wilderness to worship God. But God also has something else that he wants them to know about this entire process. And that's what we're going to read in verse 19. We'll pick it back up. He says, however, after you go go to Pharaoh, he says, however, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that, he will let you go. And I will give these people such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold, jewelry and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters so you will plunder the Egyptians. So God commands Moses to go to Pharaoh to demand the release of the Israelites, and God says, I know, though, that he will not listen to you, at least until I perform miraculous signs, until I stretch out my mighty hand. Then he will release you. And then God continues, not only will he release you, they're actually going to give you things for the road, like on your way out. Me giving you silver and gold, clothing, jewelry, so that not only will you be free, you'll be delivered from slavery, but you'll actually have resources to start your new life as a freed people. That is a really bold promise from the Lord. So, so far we've seen Moses encounter the living God. This is really the first big entrance of God in this book. We've just had hintings of it up to this point. God tells Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring my people out of slavery. I'm going to use you to do it. Moses is not convinced. And then there's this big section in the middle, 14 through 16, where something seems to happen. God reveals something about himself that he believes will change Moses's mind, right? Moses seems to have these doubts of like, Well, like who are you what what is it about you that we can trust that you're actually going to be able to deliver us why should we have confidence in this essentially what moses is asking and he says what is it about you that guarantees the deliverance of an entire nation living in 400 years of slavery that's the question I want to come back to. What is it about God's nature that guarantees deliverance? But we're going to tackle it in the second half. So we're going to take a break. There's a restroom inside, drink stations over here. Take a break. We'll come back in like five to seven minutes, and we'll answer that question. All right, so we kind of ended our time with a question. And I promise I'll get back to it. But first, I'm going to just give you a little bit of like fun trivia about me. Um, I'm one of seven kids. And that means that there was seven plus two equals nine people living in one house growing up, which is like it's kind of a lot now as adults, whenever we're all there together. But I just want you to imagine what it's like growing up with seven children, small children, various different ages, all in the same house. It's just if you've not taken care of kids, you're like, that's oh, probably seven, that's not that many. If you've taken care of kids, you're like, whoa, seven kids. Shout out to my parents; they're amazing. Um, but in order to help manage having seven children, they they were delegators. My parents are very good delegators; they're very good leaders. And so sometimes they would enlist um, some of us to help convey messages to each other, specifically the older ones. So I'm the fifth kid, which means there's four older than me. And when you're the fifth child, I mean, I'm a middle child, but everyone's almost a middle child when they're seven. So um, I didn't have a lot of authority, is what I'm trying to say, I was a fifth kid. Um, but sometimes my parents would say, okay, Rachel, you need to go tell all of your siblings it's time to eat. right?" So then I would just run all over the place, all over the house to go get everyone. Or they would say, okay, Rachel, you need to tell Aaron to take out the trash. Um, my parents didn't like yelling, so it was easier when you have just little children who can around and deliver your messages, which I totally get. Um, so that's kind of the setting for this. and. Growing up, there was a wall on our house, and on the outside it backed up to our driveway. It was right next to our driveway, which made it a perfect spot to practice tennis. So, I don't know if you guys know a lot about tennis, I think it's awesome. Um, If you don't have a partner, or somebody, a loving sibling who wants to spend their time constantly with you playing tennis, if you don't have one of those, you can hit the ball against the wall and it'll come back to you. So you can hit it, and then, oh, it's back again. You can hit it again. You can hit it again, right? So it's like endless entertainment, Um, which is great. And I knew that if I was going to become the next Serena Williams, that I would need to put in one to two hours of hitting the ball against the wall. I knew that that's what it would take. And unfortunately, not all of my siblings were on board with my dreams. Um, Because if you were on the other side of the wall, it's it's actually really loud. Um, as you can imagine, it's just, I'm just smacking the ball. I have no control. I'm just smacking the ball. It's really loud on the other side. And for the most part, it was OK. But sometimes, it was really loud. It was echoing all throughout the house. So sometimes what would happen, one of my siblings would come out, and they would say, always from the door. It was like they didn't want to come all the way out because they didn't have shoes on. So they're just at the door. And they're like, Rachel, stop hitting the ball against the wall. It's annoying. It's loud. Stop. And because of who I was at the time, and the fact that I thought I was going to be the next Serena Williams, my next response would almost always be, says who? Says who? And then I drop the ball, and I start hitting again, right? Because here's the thing. Whenever my older brother Aaron came out, he's two and a half years older than me, he thinks he's better than me, and he wants to tell me to quit chasing my dreams, I'm like, you have no authority over me, Aaron. Just because you're older doesn't mean that you have authority over me. He couldn't make me stop. I mean, he could, like, tackle me, consequences. Uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't make any consequences for me. If I didn't stop, he couldn't do anything to me. So I would say, who says? Right? But sometimes, he, he did have a good reason to say. It wasn't just him. It was my mom who was like, oh, okay. Aaron, go tell Rachel to stop hitting the wall against the wall. And so I would say, Who says? And I was like, I don't care. I don't care. Then you say, well, mom says. Dad says. I was like, okay. And you just set it down, right? Um, what's the difference? What's the difference? Aaron had no authority. He had nothing. He was just older. That's it. He was taller, stronger, any of those things. But my parents, they actually had authority. They were actually the ultimate authority in our house. They could uh, make me stop, they could give me consequences for not stopping. And so I would respond differently to them than I would to Aaron. My response was different based on who was giving the message. And although I think the stakes in our story of Moses and God are much higher than my tennis skills, I think there's actually a similar dynamic happening here. Because Moses says to God, who are you? What is Um, What is it about your nature that guarantees the deliverance of an entire nation from the Egyptian empire? What is it about your nature? And God reveals three things to Moses in these short little verses, three really powerful things about who he is, about who is giving this message to Moses, and why it matters. So look at verse 14. The first thing that God says Knows this question of what is your name, he says, I am who I am. It's probably capitalized in your Bible. Um, this actually is not the name of God. So when when God says, I am who I am, that's not God's label. He actually waits to answer that question until the second second sentence. He says, I am who I am. If I walked up to Randy and I was like, hey, Randy, who are you? And she was like, I am who I am. I'd be like, okay, that doesn't tell me anything about you. I don't know why you're being like that. <laughs> right? So I was like, what is God saying? What is he saying when he says, I am who I am? God is actually saying, I depend on nothing and no one for my existence. I am self-existing and self-sufficient. And anyone who is not dependent on anyone has authority. Right, so Aaron didn't have any authority because he was dependent on my parents. But my parents had authority because there was no one above them for me. So when God says, I am who I am, he's saying, I depend on no one for my existence. Therefore, I have all authority. So what God reveals to Moses in I am who I am is that he has all authority that God has all authority, which is a big claim. The second thing that God says, this is the actual answer to what should I tell the Israelites is your name. He says, say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. So God says, this is my name, I am, which is almost as confusing as I am who I am. And you can see God's name, I am, that's why it's capitalized. He's, he's making a statement, but he uses his name. It's the same word in Hebrew. He says, my name is I am. Which is like, what, what does that mean? And it's a little bit confusing for us. Um, it's a little bit confusing in Hebrew. Um, the words in Hebrew are difficult to translate because they have several different options with them, depending on how it's used. And things like a breathing mark, which I learned about this week. They have that, like a rest in music. Um, so it's a little bit difficult. Like it's like a clunky grammatical thing for us to read "I am" as God's name. But the word for "I am" is actually the same word that is used in verse twelve when God says, "I will be with you." So the word for "I am" and "I will be" are the same in Hebrew. So God actually already revealed something about Himself and His name when He says. I will be with you, and the way that the Hebrew works and breaks down gives us these letters, which we typically refer to as YHWH. You can understand the com- like complexity of going from Hebrew um, with multiple options to English letters. Um, but when we say that God's name is I am, we refer to that title of God as Yahweh. So. That word, though, is the same. I am equals I will be. So when God says his name is I am, or I will be, or Yahweh, those are all the same in Hebrew, God is indicating that his presence is with Moses, with Israel. Because he says, I will be with you. He connects his name, I am, I will be, to with you. And then he attaches it to their deliverance. So what we see in this section that God reveals, is that his presence is with us to deliver. It has a specific connection there. Stay with me. I know I just did a lot of Hebrew there, and that's like a little bit. Um, This is the third thing that God says. He says, say to the Israelites, so this is the second, say to the Israelites. He says, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So in addition addition to the Israelites knowing that his name is Yahweh, I am, I will be with you, God is communicating the God of your ancestors has sent Moses. Why is that important? God is saying to the Israelites, remember your great, 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 great grandparents. Remember Abraham, a man that I made a covenant with. I made a promise to him that... From him, I would make a great nation, that a nation would multiply. Remember that promise? You're living in the fulfillment of that, Israel. Remember that covenant I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And there's actually another promise that God makes. Look at Genesis 15:13; It will be up on the screen. God said this, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. And in Genesis 46, I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. So God promises to make a great nation out of Abraham, and then he even goes so far as to promise that they would be enslaved, which they're currently in, and he promised to deliver them. So when God says, I am the God of your ancestors, he wants the Israelites to recall. Oh, God is the faithful promise keeper. This is what God is revealing, that he is the faithful promise keeper. So when Moses asks, what is it about your nature that guarantees deliverance? Those are God's responses. He doesn't respond by saying, Moses, you need to shape up and just work hard and be the leader and they'll follow you. No, he says, this is who I am. He says, my very name, Yahweh, means to be with you. And that because I have all authority, and because I am the faithful promise keeper, you can be guaranteed that I will deliver you. This is the guarantee. My presence is the guarantee. It is his with usness, if I can make up a word, uh, his presence, that has always been his plan to deliver us, to redeem. He says to Moses, it is my with-you-ness, it is my presence that is the guarantee of your deliverance. And while we see God do that, he is with Israel and he brings them up out of slavery and they're free, spoiler alert, if you didn't know that, he does what he says. That is actually not the fullest revelation Of what God is saying here the fullest revelation comes 1700 years later in the Gospel of Matthew it says she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet see the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel which is translated God with us. 1,700 years after Yahweh says, my name means I am with you. My presence means I will deliver you. We see that Yahweh puts on flesh in the person of Jesus, fully man and fully God, and that God comes. He becomes incarnate. He becomes a man to be with us. And he comes to... Deliver because Jesus comes as Emmanuel, God, with us, and because God does not change, because God is the deliverer, Jesus, too, is the deliverer. Jesus, too, is the redeemer. And the, the stakes are way higher with Jesus than they were with just the Israelites. Matthew says, He will save his people from their sins. That's Exodus language. He will save his people. So in Exodus... The Israelites are slaves to Egypt, and they can do nothing about it. They cannot free themselves. But Yahweh comes down to save them from bondage and bring them out as a new people and teach them how to live. We'll see that in the back half of Exodus. And for us, Jesus came down, like Yahweh came down, to rescue us from our slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin. The Israelites were slaves to Egypt, but you and I, we're slaves to sin. When we we're born, we we're born in sin. We have a sinful nature. There's something broken in us, and out of that nature, we do sinful things. Every single person who has ever lived, except for Jesus, has done sinful things. We have rebelled against God's good design. We decided, you know what? I think I'm going to decide for myself what's right and wrong. I think I'm going to live life on my terms. And so we end up treating creation and others and ourselves as a means to our own end, for our own glory, for our own satisfaction. We think that we can gather all these different things and people to be part of our little kingdom where we're the king, but the reality is we're not the king of our own life. We're actually slaves to those desires. Because no matter how hard we could try, even if your desire was to be holy as God is holy, because of our nature, we couldn't do it. We've already sinned. We've broken God's law. So we could never do it in our own power. Ephesians 2 says it like this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived, among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Paul says to us, you were dead and sin. By nature, you were under God's wrath because you have rebelled against him and decided to do life on your own terms. And we are slaves to every desire that we thought we could gather all these different things to fulfill us. Maybe it's sex, money, success, relationships, friendships, academic standing, social status. All these desires that we have, we're slaves to them. They ultimately rule our lives. But Paul doesn't end there. He continues, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses you are saved by grace. And then in eight, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Paul says, but God, Yahweh, Emmanuel, God with us. He has made a way, he has come down to make a way for us who are under his wrath, because he's just. He's made a way for us to no longer be slaves to sin, but alive in Christ. And it's not because, Paul makes sure to point this out, it's not because you're good. It's not because you try hard to be moral. It's not because Moses was an awesome leader or because the Israelites were special. It's only because God chose them. It's only in his grace that he extends salvation to us. And if we have faith in the person of Jesus, who he is, that he is the son of God, the Savior, and what He has done for us on the cross, taking the penalty of our sin. We have faith in Him, we can be saved by grace, not because we're awesome, but because He is faithful. God's with usness guarantees our deliverance. But that's actually not the only thing that God's with usness does, His presence. God's with us actually fuels our obedience to Jesus. Because God is not just a God of deliverance or the moment of conversion. He's actually a God who teaches us then how to live as free people. Romans 6, 17 says, But thank God, although you used to be slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over, And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. God says, I've set you free from sin to live a new life. That his presence actually teaches us how to live righteously. This is probably my favorite thing. God shows up as Yahweh, God with us. And then he shows up again as Emmanuel, God with us. If we put our faith in the person and work of Jesus, God shows up again as God with us, this time as the Holy Spirit. He's with us again. God is true to his nature. Jesus says it like this, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. God is faithful. He's the same. He is with us in Yahweh. He's with us in Emmanuel. And he gives us the Holy Spirit when we put our faith in Jesus to teach us how we should live, to lead us into all truth, to train in righteousness, to put to death all those old patterns of thinking and doing that we had when we were in sin. God's with usness. his presence, fuels our obedience. Over and over again, this is what we see in Yahweh, in Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit. This is who God has revealed himself to be. Not just in Exodus, but throughout the entire story of Scripture. So there's probably a couple different ways you're hearing the things I'm saying. There's probably some of you who are more like Moses. You're here, maybe you just came to the free dinner, maybe you've been coming for a little while, or your friend invited you. And you're kind of asking a similar question to Moses, like, who is this God? What is he like? What is the Bible about? What is Christianity about? What is God like? How can I know him? What does he want from me? My encouragement to you is that Yahweh, as we'll see throughout the entirety of Exodus, is the God who wants to make himself known to you. He's the God who makes himself known and who reveals himself you. He wants to know you and to be known by you. He reveals his power, his holiness, his goodness, his deliverance in scripture and most fully in Jesus. I want to encourage you not just to know his name, the Lord, Yahweh, Jesus. A lot of people know God's label, but they don't actually know his nature. Because it is impossible for us to encounter the living God, Yahweh, and be unaffected by him. If that's the case, we've not truly encountered him. To encounter him, to know him, is not just to know his name, or just generally what the people of God are about. But it's actually to know him, to know his deliverance in Jesus, and then to obey him. So if you're hearing these things and, and you're like, I don't know, I've been asking questions about who God is and what my response to him should be, I would encourage you to ask yourself these questions. Do I know who God is as revealed in, as revealed in Scripture and in Jesus? Have I heard this thing they keep talking about, the gospel, the good news of deliverance in Jesus? Do I understand that? Do I have questions about that? If I understand it, what is it that might be holding me back from following Jesus? from experiencing deliverance from sin. My favorite part of my job is having these conversations with people, hands down. is to sit down and ask, what is God like? How can I know him? Who is Jesus? How should that change me? So I want to encourage you to ask those questions, to actually know the nature of God and be changed by him. There's also probably a lot of you who are nodding your head because you've done that. You know who God is in Scripture and in Jesus, and you've responded to him by putting your faith in him. God's with is not just for your moment of conversion, not just for your moment of deliverance, but for your continued obedience in learning to live in the Spirit, like Paul talks about. You're no longer living life as a slave to sin, but you're training in righteousness. You're growing up in your faith in Jesus. Everything about your life is being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And if that is you, if you have committed your life to follow Jesus, you can trust that he will remind you of all that he has taught. You can trust that he will give you the strength to obey him. He is with you no matter where you're at. If you're in the middle of suffering, God is with you, Emmanuel, and you will finish the good work of deliverance that he began in you. If you're struggling with sin, God is with you. He is Emmanuel, and he will finish the good work that he began in you. And if you're growing like crazy, God is with you. He is Emmanuel, and he will complete the good work that he started in you. The work of deliverance. What we see in Exodus 3 is that for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, to know God and to be changed by Him, we can know that His presence, His with usness, in Yahweh, but most fully in Jesus, that His presence guarantees our deliverance from sin and it fuels our obedience to Him after. Because he will come back, and we will see him in fullness, and he will make all things that are wrong right, including you and I. So the the question before us is, do you know God, and how will you respond to Yahweh, to Emmanuel, to the Holy Spirit? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are that you are the God who is with us, that you have been the same God always, that your desire has always been to be with your people, to deliver your people, to teach us how to be in Christ. Father, I pray um, for the person who has not put their faith in Jesus, that they would ask, what is holding me back, Father, that they would have a conversation with someone about that. Father, and I pray for the followers of Jesus in the backyard. That you would encourage them with your very presence in your spirit. That they would continue to grow in holiness. That they would continue to grow in becoming like Jesus, Emmanuel. Until you come back and you are fully with us. Father, I thank you for who you are. May we respond in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name I trust. Amen.